Welcome to International Law Talk of Walters Kluwer International Group. During a series of podcasts, we'll bring you insightful analysis, commentary, and discussion from thought leaders and experts on current topics in the field of international arbitration, IP law, international tax law, competition law, and other international legal fields. Hello, and welcome to Walters Kluwer International Law Talk. I am Alba Rivera Martinez, and today I will be hosting this episode. I am a deputy editor at Kluwer Competition Law Blog and a lecturer in competition law at University Villanueva. Today, we will be discussing the first of the European Commission's actions in enforcing the Digital Markets Act, or the DMA. In particular, we will be talking about the Commission's designation decisions issued last 6th of September. Asimakis Comminos, partner at White & Case, will join me in this conversation. Maki's CV speaks for itself, insofar as he has led and represented clients before the European courts, the Commission, national competition authorities, and national courts. He's also a visiting professor at a range of universities. And most of you will know his work and updates from his LinkedIn page, where he fleshes out the latest developments in EU competition law and regulation. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the episode, Makis. Thank you, Alba. Looking forward to our discussion. So given that uh, the DMA is a new kid on the block, let's get started on the note of its implementation. The DMA entered into force on the 1st of November of 2022, and then it became applicable early this year on the 2nd of May. Now that the Commission has designated gatekeepers for a number of core platform services, there will be a period of six months within uh, which the designated uh, companies will have to bring their practices in line with the DMA rules. As of March 2024, the substantive rules of the DMA, that is Articles 5, 6 and 7, will be fully binding. So, Makis, could you walk us through the developments that have happened ever since? Right. I mean, as you said, um, on the 6th of September, we had um, the first designation decisions. Uh, there are six designation decisions um, which are addressed uh, to six uh, gatekeepers. Uh, each of these six gatekeepers is um, designated for specific core platform services, uh, some for a number and uh, some for less, uh, CPSs, if we call them like that. And um, um, now what, um, what happens is that there will be es essentially... I would say three work streams. <laughs> One work stream is um, for those companies, and I don't know if there will be any, but there may be appeals. So if a company wishes to appeal, um, now there will be two months and 10 days within which uh, to appeal the designation decision. So that's one work stream, which is essentially a work stream for the gatekeepers. And then there are two more um, other work streams. Another work stream is for the Commission to run um, some market investigations, essentially, uh, for those companies um, that um, um, either satisfied the Commission that um, they 
prima facie, let's say that. I either satisfied the commission that um, they may meet the quantitative thresholds, but um, they don't, uh, they shouldn't qualify as gatekeepers based on the qualitative criteria. So um, there will be, I believe, three market investigations, uh, um, of, uh, sorry, four market investigations of this. And then there will be a longer market investigation um, where uh, the commission will try to prove that although a particular company doesn't uh, meet um, the thresholds, the quantitative thresholds, the numbers, still it should be de designated on the basis of the qualitative criteria. So there are these market investigations that um, uh, will be going on. And um, that's the second work stream. The third work stream, and this is essentially what your question refers to, that's the most important one. The third work stream is essentially compliance um, discussions will start if they have not already started and companies will need to prepare their compliance uh, with the uh, substantive obligations of the DMA, in particular the um, Articles 5, 6 and 7. And obviously the Commission will also have to start its own kind of uh, uh, preparations uh, for implementing uh, these specific obligations and enforcing them. These designation decisions issued by the Commission are really like just the, the start of the journey of the DMA's enforcement, as you as you said, but could you provide us with the specific criteria that determine within these work streams whether a digital platform is designated as a gatekeeper under the Digital Markets Act? Right. I mean, the, the, there are two kinds of criteria, let's say. One criterion is um, uh, the qualitative criteria. This is essentially um, uh, Article 3, Paragraph 1. So you have a number of quantitative criteria there. Um, I'm not going to go through the criteria, but, you know, essentially significant impact on the internal market, uh, uh, important gateway for business users, uh, entrenched uh, dur durable position. So there are three criteria, qualitative criteria. But then what is important is Paragraph 2 of Article 3. And for each of these qualitative criteria, there is a presumption, essentially, if you fall, if you satisfy certain numbers, if you meet certain numbers, then there is a presumption that you satisfy the qualitative criteria. It's a rebuttable presumption. Companies can still try to rebut it. And we have seen that a number of companies indeed tried and some successfully rebutted it conclusively, actually. In, in three cases, we had a, a conclusive uh, um, rebuttal of the presumption. I mean, from uh, that's what we can see from the from the press release. So, I mean, it's kind of automatic. If you meet the numbers, then you need to notify. You can try to rebut the presumption at the same time. Some companies uh, made it. Um, there were cases where companies did try to rebut the presumption, and they were successful prima facie, let's say, because the commission. Um, instituted immediately a market investigation, the short market investigation of five months to check whether indeed they should be designated or not. And we have seen also that at least one company, and that we have seen from the press reports, that seems to be TikTok, um, that's my own kind of reading of their press uh, release, did try to rebut the presumption, but the commission rejected um, uh, the rebuttal and um, proceeded to um, uh, designate them as gatekeeper. 
So there have been uh, rebuttal attempts, some quite successful. Uh, we don't know if other companies try to rebut. I mean, that we will see when the designation decisions will be published uh, at some point. In the face of the, the, this designation of these 22 core platform services and uh, six uh, gatekeepers, would you expect the Commission in the near future to uncover any other gatekeeper from under the rug? There is, of course, a possibility which is mentioned in um, paragraph 3 of Article 3, and I don't want to go into too much technical detail here, but of course, you know, you may have cases where um, companies did not notify, right? They didn't notify to the European Commission specific CPSs or they didn't notify at all. And there is a possibility for the Commission under the second subparagraph in um, uh, three paragraph three of the of the regulation to uncover, as you say, such cases and send, essentially to send a request for information and ask uh, for specific information. And once um, the file, so to say, is complete and the Commission is satisfied, um, theoretically speaking, the Commission can still designate um, these companies as gatekeepers for the specific CPSs. However, I mean, I, I'm, I cannot exclude it altogether. Um, I don't think, however, this scenario will happen in the in the short term. Of course, as you know, there is a totally different procedure to designate on the basis only of qualitative criteria, and this is uh, being followed in one particular instance, as, as we just said. And um, that is through the long market investigation of Article 17.1 of the DMA. That's the Apple's iPad operating system case, essentially, and uh, it, this means that maybe in a year's time, maybe there is another designation decision. These designation decisions are directly correlated with compliance. And a first uh, glimpse of effective enforcement is expected as early as March 2024. So how do the, the designation decisions issued by the Commission impact the real obligations and the responsibilities that gatekeepers will be required to fulfill in the future. Right. I mean, the designation decision cannot obviously change the substance of the rule. Eh? The rule that has to be complied with is contained in secondary EU law. That's Articles 5, 6, 7 when it comes to substantive obligations. So, um, the rules are what they are. They are self-executing, as the Commission has, uh, as the EU institutions indeed have stressed many times. So that substance cannot change. However, what the designation decisions will mean is that, first of all, the date of the designation decision indicates when exactly the uh, substantive obligations will be binding. And, of course, there may be... Uh, text, let's say, there may be reasoning in the designation decisions which refer to how uh, the Commission is viewing these CPSs and their interaction with other services. So this is essentially text which will be interesting in terms of delineation of these CPSs. And that particular text in the this, this part of the reasoning, to the extent, of course, it's uh, uh, publicly available, we don't know that, may indeed be um, useful in order to understand how the substantive obligations will be applied in the future. So 
Yes, I mean, the designation decision is not about compliance, it's about designation, but at the same time, there may be uh, elements there in the reasoning which can give us some uh, clues, let's say, as to how the particular obligations will apply to, to these gatekeepers. Because there's also this idea that all of the obligations contained in Articles 5, 6 and 7 do not apply in a block to all of the gatekeepers and the core platform services. So depending on the type of core platform service uh, designated, then uh, different types of provisions apply. Uh, so for example, those uh, related to the, to the number independent interpersonal communication services, for example. Theoretically speaking, all articles, all, the, all, all these uh, substantive obligations are generally applicable, right? So it's not that um, there is, uh, let's say, a Google obligation, um, a Microsoft obligation, or an Apple obligation. No, I mean, all the obligations apply equally to all designated companies. Of course, practically speaking, indeed, some of these obligations are essentially, uh, you know, tailored for specific CPSs and for specific companies. That goes without saying. But at the same time, this doesn't mean that a company can um, defend itself by saying, oh, you know, this particular obligation is, um, is not really about me, is not really about my business model, it was um, tailored on this or that particular company, not on me. So, you know, that is not possible, of course the Commission will have to bear in mind the principle of proportionality when it implements uh, the rules. And I'm sure the Commission will have a certain degree of flexibility, but of course you cannot, um, you cannot exclude the scope of the application of a particular obligation on the basis of saying, oh, I have a different business model. This is, was not intended for me. That's not possible. In the broader, in the broader area of digital platforms, there is uh, this motion that it has not only passed uh, the DMA, but also other instruments are in the making. The most salient example and the, the first immediate results of that uh, we have seen in the Digital Services Act. And in fact, in April, the Commission already adopted its designation decisions of the sort by establishing that 17 operators are very large online platforms and two undertakings are very large online search engines. In that sense, Amazon and German online retailer Zalando have already appealed those designation decisions. In your own mind, do you believe that the DMA designations will follow the same path in the in the stage of appeal, despite this this wish of the regulator and the legislator to maintain uh, enforcement speedy and effective? We can only see from the press releases of some of these companies. Some of them seem quite combative. Yeah. So it may mean this, that there will be uh, an appeal against the designation decision. The designation decision will be immediately uh, applicable unless the court uh, were to grant interim measures, which I find uh, difficult, let's say. I expect that um, this will not really affect um, the the process of um, compliance uh, implementation etc which will be running in parallel anyway because there's this argument that that digital platforms always 
tend to delay, delay, delay. So there's this uh, argument to be made that they could do the same uh, through the through the. Upgrade. Yeah, I mean, I don't believe in this argument. I think this yeah. is a kind of populist, I would say, yeah. uh, easy kind of argument. Uh, they always delay, delay, delay. Well, I'm sorry, but uh, uh, if we're talking about uh, quasi-criminal uh, nature decisions of the European Commission imposing billions, essentially, um, companies uh, have the right to defend themselves in court. I mean, they're going uh, to the European judge, the natural judge, essentially, um, within Europe, and they exercise their judicial protection rights. In terms of the DSA, the DMA, uh, the designation decisions, etc., um, I guess companies um, will think quite uh, a lot about um, what they should be doing, and if they think, if they strongly believe that they are protecting their rights or they have a strong uh, point to make, they may go to court. There's, there's also this argument um, from from a few scholars uh, running around, and uh, what uh, interpretative criteria will the Court of Justice um, apply? Will it apply those uh, criteria relating to competition law? Because European Commission has uh, remarkably highlighted that this is not competition law. So uh, what do you expect on, on that front? I don't want to go into a um, rather religious <laughs> and dogmatic battle of the nature, what, what is uh, uh, the sex of angels. Uh, you know, th that's not the, the case here. I mean, this is not, uh, I mean, for me, I have my own personal view as to this. I think this is a kind of sui generis competition law, essentially exante, that works exante. Uh, but you know it doesn't it doesn't matter at the end of the day it's an it's a secondary eu law piece essentially it's a regulation uh, it has its own criteria i think that uh, certainly the court will be influenced uh, for sure uh, by its case law on competition law but at the same time it's different uh, in many respects and the criteria are different and the way the whole thing works is different although there are many similarities there may be areas where the competition law, case law, is not really relevant. For example, uh, the idea of dominance may have uh, an impact, uh, but not much, I would say. There may be other areas where uh, the competition case law may be relevant. Also, do not underestimate that this is EU law, generally speaking, and uh, we have specific prohibitions. We have the general principles of EU law that will necessarily have a say here. These principles are legal certainty, proportionality, which is very important. So the court, I, I don't see how the court can ignore these general principles. Certainly the principle of proportionality, for example, is quite, uh, uh, maybe quite instrumental here. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that um, we will have um spillover effect of competition law, but we will have essentially um, the normal kind of um, intervention of the court in, on the basis of the general principles of EU law. Moving away from this uh, court-based uh, discussion on the opposite side of the spectrum and really one of the arguments and one of the main issues that the DMA wants to tackle with is fragmentation in the internal market. That is the reason why the DMA was not based on uh, 352, but on uh, 
Article 114 of the treaty. However, we are now, and I love this case because it's really idiosyncratic in its own, and we are now actually being expectators of growing fragmentation, especially in the German jurisdiction, and the Bundeskartelamt, the German Competition Authority, triggered its own notification procedures under Section 19A of the German Competition Act. And now these designation decisions, not as gatekeepers, but, but as undertakings with a paramount significance across markets, bind these same operators that now are being designated as gatekeepers by the Commission, such as Microsoft, Amazon, Apple and Alphabet. Yes, I think that now is the moment of truth. Um, as of the 6th of September, we have now gatekeepers. Uh, we have a commission decisions that have designated specific companies for specific core platform services. I'm just waiting to see how the Bundeskartell Amt will move now because you know, to me, it would make sense if the the German Competition Authority dropped um, the investigations that are essentially echoing the DMA. This is, you know, there, there are very specific obligations in the DMA, and there are some very specific obligations um, in the in Section 19A of the German Competition Act. Albeit, I have to I have to say that. It's a bit of a different type of law. I mean, you have like seven general clauses there. Then they're not exactly like the per se obligations that we have in uh, in the DMA, but still, some of these uh, clauses, some of these obligations, are essentially um, a copy paste, or essentially they they echo definitely. They are very similar to um, to the DMA obligations, and uh, I don't see how. Uh, the Germans can um, apply those specific uh, obligations in a way that echoes the DMA obligations. So I think, and I, I, that's how I read also some latest statements uh, made by uh, German officials and also German academics, which are quite influential. I think that uh, um, I, I don't see any, any space, let's say, for the Bundeskartellamt to apply uh, their own law uh, to, to these specific, very specific cases that are fully covered by the by the DMA, we have had all this process of uh, designation of upscam undertakings uh, with Paramount, blah blah blah, as you as you mentioned. So we had that. Um, yeah, was it a waste of time since we would have had designations at the European level? I don't know, probably, but you know, still, still, they they are out there, and we'll have to see what exactly, what what scope exactly they they found they find for um, for the application of Section 19A. In my view, that scope is not going to be a kind of a big one. I have to say. Uh, as any other act of union law and on this topic of uh, principles, EU principles, the DMA can also be the object of private enforcement, moving away from public enforcement. Um, uh, and the, the individuals may claim before national courts across the member states the application of, uh, of the DMA. Would you say that the designation decisions bear the characteristics of acts of union law with direct effect? Yes, I believe they, they do have that. I mean, I, I can certainly see direct effect in Articles 5 to 7. 
Um, it's an EU regulation. It has direct applicability. Um, that's one thing. Then you have to see whether it has direct effect too, which is a bit of a different thing. And for that, we have to see what the text of the of the law is and whether it's sufficiently unconditional and direct in order to create obligations and rights to individuals. And I have no. Um, I have no doubt that the text of Articles 5 to 7 um, has these elements and therefore um, it will certainly have direct effect. And I expect uh, from March uh, 2024 onwards, I expect uh, these provisions to be raised uh, before the national courts for sure. There is, a, um, there is a kind of discussion, what about Articles 6 and 7, for which uh, there is a possibility of a specification under Article 8. But um, as I have explained uh, also in, uh, in an article I have written in the past, I don't think that this um, affects the direct effect of these uh, two provisions. Uh, the specification procedure is really about uh, specifying compliance measures that the Commission wants to uh, order, essentially. This is not about the core elements of the, um, of the rule. Uh, and the core elements of the rule are all there. And uh, therefore, the national courts can fully apply Articles 6 and 7. Supporting this this argument, um, uh, the Digital Markets Act is not only these provisions into merge into this standalone regulation, but also into a really uh, wide and vast corpus of law of implementing acts issued by the Commission addressed to the to the gatekeepers. How would you say that those implementing acts, as we have seen uh, so far, interplay with the decisions at all? The, the implementing acts, of course, we have to see which implementing acts we're talking about. So we have essentially the rules which are in Articles 5 to 7. Um, there is a prerequisite before these provisions acquire a direct effect. There, there is a prerequisite, and the prerequisite is that the Commission must exercise its competence to designate uh, the gatekeepers. So obviously these provisions could not have been applied before uh, the designation decisions of the Commission. So you need the designation decision of the Commission in order for a directive effect to kick in and provisions become binding. So some of the decisions that the Commission will be taking constitute conditions for direct effect uh, to be enjoyed by specific uh, rules in, in the DMA. Um, that's the way it works. Some of the implementing acts uh, yeah. uh, are not really apt for private enforcement because they are strictly, um, uh, they are strictly, let's say, linked to public enforcement, right? Yeah. So um, if you go to um, Article Forty Six of the DMA, for example, they, they, it mentions certain implementing acts that um, the Commission may adopt. And you will see that some of them have nothing to do with the direct with direct effect. I mean, they have nothing to do with substantive obligations. These are essentially uh, acts that uh, define how the Commission will apply the rules. I mean, it's, it, these are public enforcement related. Do you have because uh, also in this article you wrote uh, before the the the, yeah. the, the um, final version of the DMA was issued. And since then, the, the DMA also introduced this possibility of collective redress. 
Mm -hmm. So yes. how do you see that to play out with relation to private enforcement? I don't see it being used quite a lot, to be very honest, because the DMA in reality is a statute which protects primarily, I would say, business users in reality. I mean, yes, of course, there are some provisions that uh, end users can also rely on. I'm sure some end users will rely on these provisions. But primarily, what this is about, it's about essentially um, protecting business users that rely on gatekeepers, etc. And therefore, I don't see how um, you will have a lot of cases of collective uh, representative actions. Uh, um, since we are talking really about business users here. The DSA may be of a, a different uh, animal, but uh, the DMA, I don't uh, see this happening uh, quite often, I have to say. So to bring things about uh, to, a, to a recap, in your own mind, bearing all of the discussion, um, is the Commission on the right track to achieve effective enforcement? I think yes. I think yes. I mean, definitely... Um, we are long past the the time that we were discussing about um, whether the DMA makes sense, whether the EU legislators should do that or not. I mean, that's a different type of discussion. This is for the academics and for the historians uh, at the end of the day. What we know is that we have uh, um, a secondary EU um, law instrument, that's uh, the DMA regulation. The DMA regulation has to be effective. The DMA regulation has to be implemented. I'm sure um, the gatekeepers uh, have been doing their best in order to comply with uh, uh, the DMA. And this may entail uh, huge costs for them. I mean, I'm sure there, there are cases where we're talking about uh, uh, quite a lot of costs involved in um, implementation and compliance. And they will do it. They will do it for sure. I have no doubt that um, all uh, gatekeepers are minded really to make this a success story and to have uh, as less uh, dramas as possible. There may be episodes here and there where there are disagreements. Some of these episodes may be uh, serious enough. And, you know, I cannot exclude that there may be even non-compliance decisions in the future. But uh, we should look at the, at the broad picture, let's say, and the broad picture is that uh, it's in the interest of the European Commission, it's in the interest of the, of the gatekeepers to make this a success story. Just to say something here, which I sometimes see in the, uh, even in MEPs kind of questions or in, uh, in press uh, reports, etc. There is this idea which is not... Um, uh, which is not really the correct way to see things, which is like, oh, how many resources do you have and how many decisions can you take per year and how many non-compliance decisions and can you do that, etc. Et we should just stop thinking in terms of um, competition law here and enforcement and, you know, uh, go to the global competition review uh, stats and see, okay, how many fines did the commission, how many fines did that national competition authority impose, and what's the average uh, time it took to prosecute, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is a totally different tool. This is a regulatory exempted tool. And the more we have these kind of stats, the more we have non-compliance decisions, and the more we see it like that, then 
the, the more unsuccessful the DMA would have been. This is not the purpose of the DMA is not to have this factory of statistics essentially and to create enforcement. There will be, I'm sure, uh, some enforcement cases, but the aim is really to um, act ex ante in a preventive way to establish rules that will be complied with. And um, that's for me what uh, the DMA is about. On that uh, positive and maybe drama absent note, we do not have any more time to discuss, but it has been a pleasure to have you in the podcast, Marquis. Thank you. Thank you, Alba. Stay informed. Subscribe to this podcast. Visit kluerlaw.com or follow us on social media.